0: With Election Day just around the corner, Democrats are increasingly optimistic about winning control of the Senate and the presidency. In contrast, Republicans are not as hopeful. They are pressing ahead with their plans to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to serve on the Supreme Court before Americans head to the polls. If they are successful, Republicans will have locked in a conservative majority on the nation's highest court for a generation or more. Fearing that scenario, some Democrats are threatening to expand the size of the Supreme Court in 2021 to dilute the power of its conservative majority. And others are calling for reforms like making Puerto Rico a state and eliminating the legislative filibuster to dilute Senate Republicans' ability to obstruct their agenda. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about our political institutions and ideas for fixing them. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the question, should Democrats play constitutional hardball if they control Congress and the presidency in 2021? I am James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute.
1: I'm Julia Azari, I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
0: Well, hey, guys, it looks like it's been yet another uh, exciting and eventful, uh, frustrating, uh, surprising, happy week, depending on your perspective in American politics. And, you know, as I've just said, we're discussing, you know, the question of whether should Democrats play constitutional hardball in 2021 if, if they sweep in the November elections just around the corner. And to help us work through that, we have a, a very special guest to help us you know, think about this question more clearly, about what constitutional hardball means, both institutionally and historically. Matt Green will be joining us today. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Politics at the Catholic University of America. His research focuses on political institutions, especially Congress, state and local politics, and federalism. Matt is the author of numerous books and articles on Congress and is currently working on a research project examining cases of legislative hardball at the state and federal levels. He is a dear friend. I'm happy to say of the pod, both you know he's known us for a while. He's a staff writer with Julia at Mischiefs of Faction, and I have to admit he's a, a former teacher of mine and, and an ongoing mentor of mine. And so, Matt, thank you very much for everything, and, and welcome.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's just jump right into it. What is constitutional hardball? You know what you know is adding uh, Washington D.C. as the 51st state hardball is eliminating the legislative filibuster, hardball, is expanding the size of the Supreme Court, hardball, and should Democrats do these things? And so, Julia, I'm going to turn to you. What do you think?
1: So I have a couple of things that have jumped out at, at me about this, and I will I will sort of initially go on record as a, as a little bit of a skeptic of the application of constitutional hardball um, to the kind of dynamics of American politics, I think that it's a useful concept, and I think that the way that Levitsky and Ziblatt use it, for example, in how democracies die, is is helpful. But I think it only takes us so far because we don't have a really clear established standard um, for what constitutes constitutional hardball and what doesn't. I think there are a couple things to me that are really noteworthy about the comparison between something like, say, the Republican, I I wish we had a word for this, but like the combo of holding up the Garland nomination and then moving forward quickly with the Coney Barrett nomination, neither of those is obviously right or wrong on their face. But together, they present a kind of inconsistency in standard. But there's a difference between that than adding D.C. or Puerto Rico or um, eliminating the filibuster, expanding voting rights. I think there's two critical differences. And one actually has to do with norms and informal rules, which is that we when we talk about constitutional hardball, we're talking about the way that you use the formal rules um, and the kind of informal practices that shape the use of the formal rules. Um, when we talk about these other legislative changes that are potentially on the horizon in a new democratic majority, we're talking about is changing the formal rules, right? Actually changing the structure of the game. And on the one hand, our system allows for that to happen. And on the other hand, it is, you know, it is destabilizing. And it is a kind of acknowledgement that, well, the people in power can change the rules to consolidate that power. That is a somewhat different thing than the people in power or the people with some power who share some of the divided power can use the formal rules and can violate informal provisions in order to get what they want and consolidate their power at least in a kind of situation by situation kind of basis. The other thing that I think is important is the difference between norms and democratic values which will surprise no one that I've brought that up. But I do think that that's important, right? What are what are the underlying ideas? And we should take as a given that that everyone in politics is going to use the rules to their greatest advantage right that competition is just a is just a reality um and that like tamping down your competitive advantage is not a democratic value right it is not how you continue to win it is not how you deliver for your constituents that is just something we should assume that everyone in politics who's competent can and will and should do but then the question is do your rules you know do the underlying principles behind your use of the rules suggest that your your opponents are illegitimate do they do they um, decrease the number of people who can vote or weigh in on a decision, or do they increase it? Right, these are these are different questions. So I think this is this is sort of how I would lay it out: is that we should be asking slightly different different questions. But I'm eager to hear what the what the experts in Congress have to say.
0: Matt, what have you found in your in your research on this, and especially as it pertains to uh, Congress and state legislatures?
2: Well, first, let me um, again, thank you for having me on on the podcast today. This is a great subject, and I'm excited to to talk about it and to exchange ideas uh, with you all. So um, in terms of constitutional hardball, um, you know, if you look back to the definition that was offered by uh, Mark Tushnet in his law review piece, he defines it as claims and practices that are, without much question, within the bounds of existing constitutional doctrine and practice but in some way violate the understanding of how uh, the constitution is supposed to be interpreted or enforced. So it's not so much about um, rules changes per se or even constitutional change, as it is about interpreting uh, rules in the constitution a little bit differently. So the project that I've been working on isn't quite the same because it's not really about constitutional text per se, but rather about the procedures and rules and norms within a legislature and ways that uh, individual lawmakers and parties interpret those rules, often in a very flexible fashion to get a political or policy outcome that they want. They might be breaking the rules, but more often it's just how they interpret them. So I guess it's a level down from constitution. It's really procedures within a chamber, but it's a similar idea that those rules that are written can be enforced and interpreted in ways that get an outcome that you want. And so where I think uh, it becomes an issue with legislatures is when one side or one group feels that it's being done unfairly, um, either in the legislature or in the public at large, because sometimes you can have bipartisan agreement that uh, norms uh, and practices should be ignored or rules should be bent to get an outcome that lawmakers want, even if the, the
3: public does not.
0: Lee, what do you what do you think?
3: You know, I, I've i been thinking a lot about the, the broader scope of how democracy in America is constantly changing and evolving. And, you know, if you think back to 1787, right, you know, I mean, we we had a very different country, it was a country in which only propertyed white men over the age of 21 can vote. Senators are appointed by state legislatures, there's 65 members of the
0: House. Not a lot of public roads,
3: not a lot of public roads. You know, the economy is is uh, much, you know, it's basically agrarian. I mean, and everything so much has changed. Right. And, you know, our democracy has changed and evolved. And there have been so many moments in which we, we've engaged in quite major changes to who can vote, how our institutions work, how our elections are held. And, and our democracy has continued to grow and evolve. So there's this sort of tension for me in, which I think is probably similar, you know, in line with what, what Julia was saying, that like in order for, for a, any self-organizing system to grow and evolve, it has to be able to change in response to its environment. I've been reading a bit of complex system science also, uh, as, as I've been thinking about this. And you know, so democracy is, or you know, it, it is self governance. It's a self organizing system, and the rules and the practices have to constantly change in order for the system to survive because the environment is changing. Uh, and you know, the environment includes demographics, economics, geography. Uh, you know, uh, sort of broader societal values and you know it does seem to me that we're at this moment in american politics and it's a moment that we i think we've encountered on numerous occasions in which our institutions are at odds with broad societal values so you know in some ways this this whole constitutional hardball legislative hardball question i think sometimes gets caught up in the, well, what's procedurally acceptable and, well, isn't this a breaking of precedent? And, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't you be consistent, you know, with what you said in the past? Which, yeah, sort of, but it does feel like we're in this quasi-exceptional moment And I don't know how to how to I don't think the 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 you I mean maybe maybe there is no usual conventional way of thinking about this, but you know in some some way you know there's some sort of like civil norms of this is how we do business, uh, which you know are, are clearly broken. But as we've discussed on past episodes, those norms you know may have been outdated anyway. So. I think this is this is why I, I find Julia's framing of norms and values so useful. Is that you know if we're thinking about this in terms of values, then you know we have a, we can we have a framework to 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 stand on or we can argue about if we're thinking about this in terms of like procedural norms or, you know, what's hardball and what's not hardball, then we're just looking back to what, what we did in the past or trying to, to hold our politicians to some absurd standard of actually being consistent and, and principled abstractly, which like, you know, has never held. So I'm struggling with this uh, and you know, I'm excited to dig into it a little deeper to get some more clarity from from you all.
0: Well, you know, on this podcast, we only talk about things that we're struggling with. So in that sense, perhaps it's a giant, you know, political therapy exercise. But um, Matt, in thinking about what Lee just said, I mean, is there anything in your research that has, has jumped out at you? Any specifics that, that can help inform us and help inform Lee's understanding of, of this kind of this concept and and how it works?
2: Sure. Well, you know, Part of it, its this is an ongoing project, so I'm still discovering uh, as, I, as I go, but one of the things that I've learned in, in looking at these cases in which you see legislative hardball is just how much of it actually happens. There's a lot of cases of this, particularly at the state level. So when we think about talking about hardball and playing hardball, usually folks are looking at Congress, um, and it's obviously relevant now because of the Democrats talking about what they'll do if they take the Senate and the White House, um, with respect to the Supreme Court. But this is not an unusual kind of behavior at the state level. And in some states, it's, I hate, I mean, I hesitate to say this, but it's almost part of the culture of the legislature. So states like North Carolina, for example, it seems fairly, uh, uh, more often than in other states, you see the majority party deciding at the last minute, uh, we're going to change this, uh, we're going to add this language to a bill when no one can see it, or we're going to hold the clock open longer than we're supposed to. And uh, we, see, we see we do hear about that with Republicans now in the state legislature, but there's a tradition that goes back decades when Democrats were in the majority. So one of the things I think I've learned from this is just how prevalent it is, especially at the state level. And I think you know that's both an optimistic and pessimistic finding because it's pessimistic, meaning if we have this standard that there are these, you know, as Lee was saying, these rules and we're all supposed to follow them, and politicians are hypocrites if they don't. Well, you know, then they're hypocrites. It's just, it's just not. It's the rules are broken more often or bent more often than we might uh, like. But on the other hand, the fact that this has been done so many times and yet we don't see, you know, democracy disappearing. Uh, we still see, um, you know, democratic norms and practices generally being followed at the state level suggests that this is one of those ways that um, uh, at least our democracy operates in practice without uh, fundamentally undermining the values uh, the democratic values that are essential for for a democracy to succeed
0: yeah I think that's a it's a, a great insight and it really helps to to clarify a lot of my thinking and it and it and it brings my mind back to something that Julia said at the beginning that that both you and Lee have have touched on here which I think was a fabulous observation and that is that you know, playing up your competitive advantage is a, is a core kind of democratic value. I mean, it's the whole it's the whole concept of, you know, Madison saying ambition ought to counteract ambition. In fact, it's what allows our system from an institutional standpoint, at least to, to preserve itself and to keep on going. And if I think about the Constitution as establishing, you know, not some giant political factory, but, uh, you know, kind of creating an institutional space. Uh, in which uh, self-governing people can do politics and participate in politics, that that competitive advantage uh, that you know sometimes it's hardball, sometimes it may not be, but that that's what allows this process to keep that space to survive, and I think this though draws my my focus to. I th- what I see is a similarity between the, both the constitutional hardball aspect of this conversation and the legislative hardball aspect, because, yes, while one, on one hand we're dealing with like these larger constitutional questions and on the other hand, we're dealing with kind of rules and practices with, with inside Congress and the state legislatures, I think they rest on a common foundation and, and it centers on this question of how we view the role of rules in politics and I guess, and my question, you know, for you, Matt, is: is it inherently destabilizing, given Julia's observation about competitive advantage, either at the constitutional level, institutional level, or even within legislatures? Is it a um, is it a destabilizing thing that? people use the rules to their full advantage or use their authority over the rules to create new rules to full advantage? Can that be inherently destructive of the system? Because I think in a lot of the narrative that we see today, and I think this speaks to the difference between how, you know, as you say, this has been going on since the beginning of the Republic in many respects. But Today, there's this sense of existential dread that accompanies our uh, observations of this hardball. And so can hardball itself undermine the political system when it's consistent with the rules and structures of that political system?
2: I think, I mean, empirically, I think that uh, I don't think that there's any evidence that it's inherently destabilizing to bend the rules, um, break the rules, um, reinterpret the Constitution to benefit your side or an individual Um, Because, as I said, we see it, we've seen it um, for decades, if not centuries, uh, in the United States, especially at the state level. I do think two things, though. One is it can be, especially if uh, you have a highly uh, competitive political environment. So if you are in uh, the minority, say, and the majority party exploits the rules to really um, mess with you and you lose, and you have the power and the ability, this is kind of getting to Francis Lee's argument about competitiveness, you retake the legislature in the next election, you now have an opportunity, especially because you have a fresh memory of what happened, to then do a tit for tat type move. And that can be potentially destabilizing. So I think how competitive the political environment is, is one that can make this a problematic move. The other thing though, um, that occurs to me is the very fact that people are saying that it's destabilizing, and they're saying this could be a problem, is reflective is itself inherently important because i think it reflects a view that you shouldn't do these things um and that's probably a good thing to have in a democracy that people say you know you shouldn't be doing this with merrick garland and then you you know doing this with coney barrett that's just wrong if we all said forget it you know the ends justify the means that could actually result make these uh these these kinds of hardball moves more problematic so some ways it's good that people even if there's no not a lot of empirical basis for it people are saying you shouldn't do these things
0: that's a you know i'm, I'm going to come back i'm going to hold it but i as as our listeners will no doubt uh, not be surprised by now means ends politics is one of my favorite favorite themes so so thank you for bringing that up but lee what's uh what do you think
3: yeah i wanted to, to jump in here and um you know, respond to, to something that Matt just said, uh, Matt, because I think there's a real tension in those two things that you just said. One is that it's, it's good that we have politics now that is calling attention to those inconsistencies uh, and, and hypocrisies and, you know, rule busting constitutional hardball. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you talked about the, the way in which our, our very competitive politics you know, makes that worse because it gives you know, the, the sort of opportunity for parties to 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 take turns, but then use those turns to to push the limits of what's acceptable, thus undermining our collective faith that you know our institutions are fair, and you know there's some basic sense of fairness and legitimacy on which our democracy depends. You know, and in some ways, you would think that, like, sort of the the you know electoral connection or the electoral accountability aspect of politics would would put a limit on the excessive constitutional hardball, because at some point voters would be repelled by it. But you know, the, I think one of the reasons why we are seeing so what, what seems like excessive, you know, even by our standards of, you know, hypocrisy and, and constitutional hardball, what seems like excessive constitutional hardball and hypocrisy is the sense that there's no, there's no electoral penalty for it because voters are so clearly partisan that, you know, they are willing to forgive considerable corruption and scandal uh, as, you know, as well as other other things. I mean, it's, uh, so so there's, you know, in theory, democracy should provide some sort of Feedback mechanism to say enough is enough, uh, you know, and if it if it doesn't. Then, you know, what because things are so partisan, then we're getting to this moment in which, well, if our side does it, it's acceptable because it's advancing our values, so we don't really care. And if the other side does it, it's totally unacceptable, it's hypocrisy. And what you wind up with is a sense that there is just no faith in our political institutions. Now, uh, you know, something else that, that you said Matt about, you know, talking about, it depends what the outcome is, uh, right? I mean, you can use constitutional ledger domain for all kinds of things that could be, you know, unpopular policies, that could be, you know, broadly popular policies, and it's an end around some, somebody in the legislature who is just obstinate for some reason. And so I, I think sometimes, you know, we get a little hung up on the process and I think this is something that is particularly common in sort of media and journalism and good government and you know less focused on the outcome because you know in some ways the the process there's a there's a there's a clear precedent when we're evaluating the process and we can compare it to the past and also the process is something that opponents will always lift up as, as a problem, right? You know, oh, we didn't get to vote on it. Oh, this was shoved down our throats rather than focus on the policy itself. Uh, And maybe it's because, you know, to some extent that's how political coverage works. That it's all about, you know, competition and it's less about policy. Maybe in some way it's it's a sense that this is what voters connect to is, you know, rather than actual policy. You know, they they like the, the sort of cloak and dagger Stuff. But I think broadly, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I don't worry about this sort of stuff if it's seen as, you know, advancing policy that that is broadly supported, um, you know, or fits with broader democratic values and doesn't undermine the fundamental legitimacy of our political institutions. But I think what's happening now in these hyper partisan times is that there's both no accountability for it because everything is partisan and the ways in which the, the parties do it to each other and then claim that the other side is illegitimate is fundamentally eroding a basic sense of trust and fairness in our political institutions, which we actually need for government to be able to function. So I'm wondering what you all think about that.
0: Matt?
2: Yeah, so... um I mean, those are those are great points. One thing that you said that I think you know that, that really st- stuck stuck with me there is um, talking about the difference between these um, moves that um, result in outcomes that are broadly supported or you know have broad support, and the process is less important. And whereas if it's a highly partisan environment, where procedure becomes an issue, of course, when you're on the losing side, you usually point it to procedure. Uh, anyway, because you lost. So it's how you lost. It's somehow not fair. Blame the refs sort of thing. I think with, you know, one of the things that I've uh, learned in looking at these cases at the state level is, and I mentioned this earlier, that um, sometimes it really is one party against the other, um, and it can be an outcome that's broadly supported or not, um, but it's, it's clearly partisan. But sometimes it's, and more often than not, these are things that people in the legislature just kind of agree is the right thing to do, but they find the rules an annoying encumbrance or uh, you know, something that's keeping them from doing it, so a hindrance. So, so there's all these little tricks that get done that I would put into the same category, that are really done not to get one party against the other, but it's really the legislators versus the public and the media. So, like in you know Illinois, for example, uh, you have these bills that get introduced that change one word from you know the to an or just the to the, or a bill that just you know spends two dollars on a school. And you're like, what's what's that all about? Well, it's not quite as flagrant as you know stacking a court or something like that, but that's to get around rules that. Were designed to ensure the process was easy for people to see, and there was an amendment process, and there were all these timelines and deadlines. So you have a bill that just amends one word or changes one word. You're technically following the rules that say you can't, you know, you have to amend a bill by this date. And then later on in the process, you just jam all kinds of things in there that nobody pays attention to. Uh, you kind of, you know, pack it up with all kinds of things. Um, And these are things that aren't as extreme and they're not partisan because both sides have kind of agreed that the rules are not really workable. So, I mean, just to throw another complication in there, I guess, you've got things that are partisan, there's things that the public supports, and then there's things that the public doesn't even know about. The good government people don't like, but legislators do it because that's how they get the grease into the legislative wheels to make the process work.
0: Julia?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Matt, you sort of addressed some of what I wanted to to bring up, which was the ways in which informal rules and practices sort of preserve stability by allowing, you know, allowing political actors to work around rules that may not like be flexible enough for one reason or another. Um, but I'm really now thinking about this. I'm really now thinking about this, this tension between stability and accountability. It seems to me that you know we've mentioned several times that that because of heavy partisanship that we don't see um, we don't see people held accountable for this kind of hardball. And I wonder like what what examples we have of that occurring in the past um, FDR and court packing is one. Is one possibility, you know, speaking about broadly about constitutional hardball. But you know, how much, how often do we actually see that kind of accountability? It seems to me more the case that when we talk about accountability, um, what we're seeing now is people frustrated that the rules work a certain way, um, and then this sort of push to change those rules, and that then speaks to stability, right? That speaks to the some of the questions we have about these deeper institutional. Changes like adding states, for example, that are kind of like, okay. in order to in order to meet this this accountability need, um, we need to enact some drastic changes. And that sort of that's not necessarily in service of stability. So I wonder what you know, we've thrown out this word stability and we've thrown out accountability several times. And I just wonder what we mean by those and what sorts of examples come to mind when we talk about those. Can I just throw in my two cents on that?
0: Absolutely. Make it 10 cents.
1: Okay.
2: (laughs) I love that. I love that observation, Uh, Julie, your observation about stability and accountability and the tension between the two. You mentioned examples. So the, you know, one example that would, that comes to mind would be the adoption of Reed's rules in the House of Representatives in 1890, which was a kind of legislative hardball where, you know, Speaker Joe Reed just gets, I'm sorry, uh, Thomas Reed just gets up and says, we have these rules that say you can you can just decide you don't want to be counted for a quorum, even though you're in the chamber. And I'm just going to start counting you. Uh, and the Democrats just go ballistic. because how dare you do this to us? And then in the next election, the Republicans lost control of the House. Now, I doubt it was because of Reed's rules, but maybe it was. And the Democrats claimed it was. So they said, aha, you've been held accountable because you were so unfair, Reid. And we're going to go back to the old way of doing things. So there's your accountability. But then what happened? Well, the Republicans said, fine, we'll just do the same thing you guys were doing before we changed the rules and just not allow ourselves to be counted. So there's no quorum. So you can't get anything done. So then you have, I don't know if it's instability. Uh, It is instability, I guess, but also a lack of productivity. And the Democrats effectively have to, they eventually have to say, okay, Reid, you were right. So you see, I think that dynamic there, uh, it's the first example that comes to mind. But I think a lot of times, you know, these practices are either ignored, especially at the state level, or there's uh, there is no change in power. And so, you know, lawmakers look at elections as giving a message, as David Mayhew said, and they don't see a change in power. Therefore, the electorate likes what we did and then they can just keep doing what they're doing.
0: So I want to dig a little deeper here. And, you know, Matt, I take your point earlier about the importance of the context and the environment. And I think especially bringing in, you know, Francis Lee's research on partisan competition and how that impacts the, the kind of uh, the, the effect or the influence of hardball at the constitutional or legislative uh, level. But I think that highlights to me at least you know, two things that we have to have in the basic sense for democratic politics to work. And this is informed by David Hume. It's informed by Hannah Arendt. And that is one, and we've been talking about this in terms of rules. That's the first thing. You got to have rules. You have to have rules because they give us kind of islands of predictability in a rent uh, terminology. Or if you're uh, you know, from an econ- uh, economist type uh, perspective, they give you leverage to ultimately uh, work with your your equals to bargain and to negotiate and to ultimately accept half a loaf in the end. The thing doesn't work without rules. If it, If you don't have rules, you're in kind of brute force territory. But you also need, and this gets to the point about the importance of the environment, you have to have the spirit of forgiveness. Because if we can't forgive, if that is impossible, then we're no longer free in a very theoretical sense. Instead, we're locked in this kind of chain reaction. Think about Steve Smith's uh, procedural arms race. Like, well, the Democrats did that, so then the Republicans had to do that, then the Democrats had to do that, and then, you know, and so on and so on. And that gets us locked into this kind of tit-for-tat thing. And in those environments, I think yeah, you're right. I mean, it could quickly spiral out of control. But let's but let's talk about specifics. I'm going to ask you a question that kind of gets back to both rules and the spirit of forgiveness. When we say constitutional hardball or legislative hardball, what are you know the things that Democrats might do? Incidentally, I think they're all inside of Congress, uh, so they all take legislative action in some form, or you know, eliminate the filibuster. Court packing or expanding, uh, admitting new states like Puerto Rico to dilute the power of of Senate Republicans. We can even go back further and talk about Republicans trying to shut down the government uh, for uh, for you know to defund Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and, which is you know an interesting thing because in Federalist fifty eight, Madison talks about the power of the purse is the most complete and effectual weapon that the people's representatives can have. And it seems to me that today this notion of hardball has completely just taken that weapon and thrown it out the window and said it is completely illegitimate to use it and so i guess my question is is our view of hardball in these instances and others informed by the policy ends in question and if so are we already operating in this kind of means ends politics and if so further Does that mean then that the problem is bigger than what politicians or legislators do in politics, but how they think about politics? You know, we don't the rules no longer mean what they need, what they would otherwise mean when you have means and ends politics on the brain. Um, You don't really care about the spirit of forgiveness. You don't really care about the role of rules in in, in politics to help create a stable environment to make decisions. You're basically just trying to 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 get your outcome in whatever way you want. How do you help me understand this? How do you work through all of that? You're asking me? <laughs> well, yes, as as your former student, I'm asking you to uh, to, uh, to 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 educate me and enlighten my uh, enlighten my understanding here.
2: <laughs> I think you know this subject much better than I do, but I'll I mean, I'll give my two cents, but I'm, you know, curious to hear what others have to say on this. Um that spirit of forgiveness is uh an interesting concept when um placed into the context of extreme partisanship uh, and almost team play that, you know, again, Francis Lee and others have written about. Um, I think within a legislature, I think you generally see more of that spirit of forgiveness. Um, I'm just sort of speculating here, Um, especially in chambers in places like the Senate, where you have people who serve for a long time with each other, they have longer terms, um, and they can feel some degree of separation from what their activist base might want. Um, And that I think is really important for a legislature to work because it not only prevents tit for tat, um, hardball, but it also prevents it from happening in the first place if it's not necessary. Um, I think the problem though, is that more and more people are, and not, again, at the state level, there's not a whole lot of attention to it, but in Congress, um, because of social media and all the other ways that we know what lawmakers are doing on a, you know, almost minute by minute basis, I think it's there's less of that space that's available for them to develop and exercise that spirit of forgiveness. So I think if I remember correctly, after the hearings uh, with Judge Barrett, I had heard somewhere I didn't see it that I think Senator Dianne Feinstein hugged who was it? Um, hugged a Republican,
1: Lindsey Graham. I think it was Lindsey Graham, the chair. Hug Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yes. Just not not COVID safe.
2: No, no, no. Right. So obviously <laughs> that's not a good idea in this environment. But the other criticism was how dare you demonstrate any kind of grace or kindness to someone who has committed hardball, who is so partisan, who's responsible for all these things. And maybe they're right. Maybe she shouldn't. But how much harder it is to demonstrate that kind of forgiveness in an environment where you will be attacked viciously for doing this. And we have, you know, I'm sure you can all come up with many examples, you know, like Oh, you know, John Boehner when he was speaker, he played golf with Obama. How dare he right what what's the what's the problem here? You know it used to be you know Tip O'Neill when he was speaker, as a Democrat and um and Bob Michael, who was the Republican leader, they played golf all the time, but somehow that's seen as illegitimate political action and betraying your party, and if that's the case, I do think you have the danger of eroding that spirit of forgiveness, which keeps a legislature functioning and ensures that its rules are are followed and respected by all members.
0: And I think this gets back to something that that Lee said earlier, and and it also, I think, speaks to there is an article in the Washington Post recently about conservative groups saying that, you know, we're locked in this battle of good versus evil. You know, well, if you're locked in a battle of good versus evil, or if Lindsey Graham is literally, you know, ruining the republic, it, it's hard to rationalize. It's it's easy to rationalize throwing everything out the window and, and no longer operating according to the rules. The spirit of forgiveness itself becomes almost irrelevant at that point because you're just you're literally just trying to conquer and 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 basically rule the other person. But you know, let's Lee. Let's get to to consequences here, and let's you know let's think about if Democrats do some of these specifics that that we've hinted at here, maybe not uh, spoken about as uh, specifically as we should have. But if they do some of these things, what do you think? You know, the consequence what the consequences will be, building on a lot of what uh, Matt just said.
3: Well, now you're describing the doom loop of. Uh of escalation. And when you are in a battle of good versus evil, yeah, it it is hard to forgive. That sounds like
0: a book that I think there's a book recently that someone wrote about the doom loop.
3: What is that one? I don't know. Just, just Google my last name and doom loop and you'll, you'll come up with it. Uh, It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Also available as an audio book, by the way. So uh, question of forgiveness, right. Is, is, you know, always when you get stuck in these cycles is, who should forgive so should the democrats forgive republicans for playing constitutional hardball with the supreme court and just say you know what nah, you know all's all fair so you know we're just going to lay down our arms or if democrats decide to add three more justices to the supreme court and dc and puerto rico as states should Republicans just be like, well, you know, I, th- I think I think we've had enough of this. So let's just just forgive. I mean, I, I mean, I actually after I say my little piece here, I actually, James, want you to tell me what what you think Republicans would do in response to Democrats uh, adding D.C., uh, maybe Puerto Rico estates and adding, you know, two or three more justices to the court. Now, but before before I I. I turn it back over to you. I want to kind of hone in on something, which is the Democrats rationale for doing this, that it's not just the constitutional hardball. It's also a broader principle about the the, the fairness of the process, which is to say that we've now have a Supreme Court uh, that is you know, in which the conservatives have almost uniformly been appointed by a president that lost the popular vote but managed to win the electoral college, which seems to to many, including me, as like a reversal of of what we think of as basic democratic fairness that the person that governs the country should uh, <clears throat> should have been elected with a with with a at least a plurality of support nationwide. And similarly, by a Senate that, uh, you know, represents a minority of Americans in the Republican majority. And, you know, we just because of the way that the Senate over represents certain states and under represents other states, you know, the Republicans can have a majority in the Senate and yet represent a minority of Americans. And you know, it, it's true that small states have always had an advantage in the Senate, but what's new about this era is that the small states are, are disproportionately Republican and the large states are disproportionately Democratic. So now uh, a Republican might say, well, look, that's the Constitution. We're just playing by the rules. So if you want to change those rules and start adding states and start adding justices, you're the one who's changing the rules and Democrats would say that, well, but th- these are like basic democratic principles that we shouldn't have minority rule. And you know, it seems to me that part of the reason that we have that th- this instability in addition to the hyper-polarization is we have these two competing principles and no clear way to decide among those principles. So I think Julia and I would certainly say, well, the, the values should predominate. Uh, over this sort of artificial sense of, you know, well, you know, we, we have these norms or even these rules, but like they're fundamentally unfair. And we have a, a although you can, you, I don't want to speak for you necessarily, Julia, but, you know, we have this broader set of principles and values. Uh, and so we should push those values forward um but i uh, something tells me james that mike lee and ted cruz are not going to say that that's the that, that that those values are more important but you tell me
0: well i think it's even that though it appears to be more operating an outcome based territory and let me just preface my comment by saying that in in clarifying your earlier comment about minority rule. In America, no one is meant to rule. The majority is not meant to rule and the minority is not meant to rule. We don't have rulers in America. And I think we often leave that out. And what we have is a space where equals, in theory at least, can come together and adjudicate their differences and make collective decisions. And our intricate structure, our institutions, uh, the way in which they're structured, created for the first time in human history, a a permanent space for that kind of self-rule where everyone's a ruler and ruled to kind of play out on a permanent basis, but when I talk about the spirit of forgiveness, I'm not I'm not necessarily speaking about the willingness of actors to kind of uh, you know accept the outcomes per se. What I'm saying is that it's the the willingness of the actors to acknowledge those outcomes. As, you know, legitimate and then wake up the next day if they don't like them and and try as hard as they can to 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 overturn them or to or to get new outcomes or other things, but to do it within that space, because without without that spirit of forgiveness, it's like almost a commitment to remain in that space it's hard to make polit- make decisions in this way it's and if if you if you're not committed to, if you're not committed to remain in that space then you're you can't really adjudicate your disagreements via politics so in the most extreme form and let's start there and work our way back you have you know the civil war in the south they basically say look yeah we, we see the writing on the wall I don't care I'm not I can't forgive the north's policy on on slavery we're going to take our you know we're going we're, we're leaving this and we're going to do our we're going to try to resolve our disagreements via war. In this instance, I think what we see is, is a we've we've almost left the kind of space of politics in the sense that we are using prior action of, of people, of others to to basically deny our agency to give us that basically says that we can't be held accountable because they're the ones who did it to us. They're the ones who did this. And and when you have that, our entire representative system kind of falls apart and then it ultimately drags the Constitution, that structure that we need to do politics down into the fray. And it's not long. I'm not sure how long it can last when we when we do it that way.
3: Yeah. I mean, we are far from your your ideal. And I think that the problem is that, I mean, in order to to justify these actions, What happens is that, you know, politicians say, well, what what the other side did was illegitimate, and therefore we have to do this. And by saying it's illegitimate, you know, they are adding to this escalation that nothing is legitimate. And if nothing is legitimate, then Anything is possible, and if there are no rules, then there's just chaos, and then we don't have a space for politics. We have a space for violence and anarchy.
1: I think I'm in pretty broad agreement with Lee about generally about the rules, and I've been thinking about this a lot, James, with regard to your sort of aphorism about nobody rules in in America, but somebody has to govern, and that means you need a process by which you, you figure out the structure of the input and you resolve the you know, the conflicts and that the necessary foundation of that is this understanding of kind of mutual legitimacy and legitimate opposition. And this is, I mean, I just keep coming back to this. And I think it was really interesting that Matt brought up this, you know, this sort of, you know, superficial example, but we have tons and tons of these examples from the Trump era of questions of like, should Democrats be sitting down with X, you know, should Feinstein be friendly with so-and-so? And, I think that there's some gray area there in terms of substantive issues, but that thinking about it in terms of the legitimacy of this of the Barrett confirmation, this will probably be, I think, a kind of legitimacy stain on the court and on American politics for some time. Um, assuming she gets confirmed next week, and we're recording this on October 16th, um, you know that to me is like there's a whole new level. And there's this big gaping open question about how in this case, it's usually Democrats, how how they should respond to this kind of delegitimizing hardball from Republicans, not using the rules to get the outcome you want substantively, but sort of using the rules in a way that's that's reckless with with legitimate opposition. And I wish that I didn't. I wish I didn't see it this way, but increasingly I do. So, yeah, I'd love to hear from Matt here on this.
2: Well, I think that the,
1: um, what's interesting about the, the, the particular
2: court battle versus, you know, examples of passing a bill in the you know, Louisiana state legislature is that Republicans are trying to do is, and I don't like the word stack. I mean, we talk about stacking the court, but it becomes kind of a loaded phrase. But what they're effectively doing is trying to put an imprint on a separate decision making body that has significant authority and can shape the country for decades. So I think that's why I can see why Democrats are saying, we're going to you know, use our powers uh, as tit for tat, because this is not just a case of you know, expanding Medicare to include prescription drugs, which back in 2003 was another example where the Republicans just kept the voting clock open for three hours so they could get the votes they wanted. It was frustrating for Democrats. They were furious. But it was a law, in theory, they could undo it uh, if they wanted or amended it later if they had a majority control. But this is a court they can't unless they want to start impeaching the judges on the Supreme Court. I hate that you not throw that out there as a possibility because they could do that too. Nice. Yeah, it has, no, 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 no. But you see this again, like what could the, the consequences of this from the perspective of activists and citizens? Is long-lasting um, because you're giving a chamber, an institution that has effective veto power, you're moving it in a policy direction, arguably with the long-standing consequences. And that's where I think this is a more, arguably more dangerous and destabilizing uh, situation that that we're in.
0: So I want to, as we head into our kind of final thoughts here in takeaways, because I have more questions now than I did when we started, which I guess is the sign of a good episode. It is a sign that we're we're thinking uh, about this stuff, but. When we mentioned the courts in, in Barrett, this reminds me of something that uh, Keith Whittington wrote um, on the dynamics of constitutional authority and how sometimes losing political parties try to lock in their advantage over a longer period of time by turning to the judiciary. And we certainly saw that with the Federalists, although I would point out to to, to the Republicans who are listening, there, there are not many Federalists around today, so this may not be a long-term success strategy. Um, but... The, and, but coming back to this legitimacy question that, that Julia just mentioned here, and we have to have a process, and I agree with that, but I wonder if it's the problem is not so much hardball, but the way in which our system overall operates today and, and by extension how we think about it, because to have a process – You have to ensure that the majority doesn't rule that process. I mean, this is Madison's vices of the political system, right? This is the fundamental problem with with majority rule. There's nothing to prevent the minority from being tyrannized. And America is meant to get around that and meant to sidestep that issue by saying that no one is meant to rule, but to ensure our system... That the majority doesn't rule, you have to have ambition counteracting ambition. You have to have Julia's earlier point of uh, of the players in the process playing up their competitive advantage. But today, and this is to Matt's last point, Barrett's confirmation is a problem for Democrats, not because the the Supreme Court rules America. It's a problem because we think and expect the Supreme Court to rule America. Congress has plenty of. Of tools at its disposal to defend itself against Amy Coney Barrett on the federal bench, the president has many tools to defend him or herself against Amy Coney Barrett, as do I think the states, although less than the the, the separate federal branches do. And I guess my you know my question, I'm gonna throw it out to the group and then let you all you know take us home here, is. Is it is it the hardball itself, or is it our expectation that our political system operates in a way that it fundamentally is not designed to operate? Because to be honest with you, and I'll say this as a conservative, I you know, from a policy perspective, I may have problems with a lot of these things. But you know, if, if you want to add Puerto Rico as a state, giddy up, add Puerto Rico as a state. If you want to add DC as a state, I think that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's nothing illegitimate fundamentally about those things. I think what's ultimately destructive is that we're no longer seeing the kind of the venues of politics like congress is a place where we we go to try to win and we use this notion of hardball to to kind of discourage other people from doing so as well
3: well i'll jump in here and like yeah i mean i think a, a, an important theme of this conversation and and thank you to to matt for making this quite clear is that there's nothing new about constitutional hardball and there's nothing new about legislative hardball. And that's just what legislatures do. But I I think Matt's uh, point about difference between, you know, passing a prescription drug benefit that is something that a lot of people benefit from, although maybe the process itself was, you know, kind of dubious uh, and, you know, attempting to uh, kind of lock in a permanent conservative advantage on the court is uh, very significant. So, I mean, James, you talk about your your namesake, James Madison and his concern about majority rule, which, you know, I I share as well. Um, And, you know, I think that the danger and what Madison was really warning about was permanent majority rule that he and many of of his contemporaries uh, sitting down in 1787 said, you know, democracy, self-governance is actually a quite fragile thing. And the challenge is when a majority becomes semi-permanent and uses that power to impose its will on a minority. The minority says this is illegitimate and the whole system breaks down. And that was informed by their reading of history Uh, and of of civil wars that had constantly undermined earlier republics and democracies. So uh, the precise challenge of this particular political moment is that we have two parties that are competing to try to lock in this permanent majority power. Uh, and also are deathly afraid that the other side will lock in this permanent majority power. So it creates this politics of high stakes willingness to, to to take strong views to lock in that power and prevent the other side and a sense that the other side is illegitimate. This is the doom loop and you know this is why you know I Personally, believe that the only way out of this is to break this binary conception that there should be a majority party and a minority party. You know, in a a multi-party system, there is no majority party. There is no minority party. There's multiple parties that are operating in different coalitions. And you know, frankly, that's how American politics has worked for uh, for most of our political history. Is that even though there were two parties, the you know the parties were overlapping coalition, so that you know there was no sense that if you know one side was going to lock in power because the, they were too divided and too too overlapping to actually make that uh, operate in any meaningful sense. And that's the danger that we're in. And that's why this moment feels so fraught. It's not because that we're doing more or less constitutional or legislative hardball is that the object of that constitutional legislative hardball is to try to lock in some permanent majority.
0: Julia, what do you think? And then let's uh, let's let Matt here take us home.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think a thing that I've said a lot on this podcast and other contexts, which is that when we get into legitimacy and we get into the idea of sharing power and who rules, Well, and the founding, what we haven't contended with is what this all means in a multi-racial, multi-ethnic democracy. And that's, I mean, I know we're talking about legislative procedure here, but it seems to me like this is kind of at at the root of a lot of these things. And I think, James, when you talk about, you know, statehood for D.C. or statehood for Puerto Rico, that you're... Your view is not the view expressed by a lot of your fellow conservatives. And I think that's sort of the problem. Is like there's conservatism as a philosophy, and then there's this sort of Republican conservative side that's become a home for what used to be, you know, a a Democratic constituency or a more diffuse constituency of people who do not think that it's legitimate for for people of color to be part of the, the governing coalition. I think it very much gets to your point, James, that you like to raise about how nobody... Nobody rules in this country, but in fact, that's that's not really historically true. Um, we very much have had a, a hierarchy where some people get a say in the governance and some people don't. So for me, like I know I'm kind of a broken record on this, but I think a lot of these problems of legitimacy and these problems of you know undermining one's opponents, I think Lee is right that there are some structural. Components that make that possible and that provide incentives to make those kinds of appeals, but at the root of this is our lack of, um, our lack of reconciling the, our our past and the way we envision governance and hierarchy. I'll I'll bring it. I'll hand it off to Matt to bring us back to legislative politics.
2: Oh, I don't know what I can add to that. I think those are all such great points. And you've one of the things I've enjoyed about this conversation is you've got me to think about the cases of legislative hardball that I've found in a much Broader, more theoretical way. So rather than just thinking about, oh, well, this party did this or that party did that, you know, these are raising really fundamental questions about democracy and accountability, about the role of partisanship and competition, to the extent to which lawmakers just play to win and why they do that and whether they should. Um, and fundamentally, who's, go- you know, who governs, right? So the question is, the uh, famous question goes, right? Is it the majority? Is it a minority? Does it make a difference? So You know, these these cases that we see and we read about and people get passionate about are it's all fine and good in the short run. But they do raise bigger, more fundamental questions about
3: about American democracy.
0: Well, Matt, thank you for joining us today. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question.
3: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.